Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, we're learning about a brilliant new data set that will help you help young athletes with ACL reconstruction. Two of the main drivers of the project that involved five different centres contributing data from over 700 young people with ACL injury join me today, and they're going to share more about how they made the project work, how you can use the information in your clinical practice tomorrow, and most importantly, how to access the fantastic clinical resource that they have developed. Dr. Chris Kuenza is an Associate Professor in the Department of Kinesiology and a Co-Director of the Exercise and Sports Injury Lab at the University of Virginia. And Dr. Adam Weaver is a Senior Physical Therapist at Connecticut Children's Sports Physical Therapy, where he works primarily with high school and college athletes. Do make sure you check out the show notes for links to all of the important resources that we talk about today. Okay, here's the episode. Chris, Adam, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you join me today. And today we're talking about one important and I think often challenging phase in rehabilitation after an ACL injury or an ACL reconstruction. That's that kind of middle phase beyond the acute recovery from injury and a little bit before the return to unrestricted sport participation. And I'm really excited because we've got the chance to talk about how you're translating research into practice and how you're both doing that in the workplace, which is very exciting. And I think we're all really comfortable with framing strength testing and function testing as one of the keys to monitoring and progressing a quality musculoskeletal rehabilitation program, and not to mention having that information guide decisions about returning to sport. But I reckon one of the challenges for clinicians and for patients and athletes is how do we interpret the results of what we get when we measure strength and function? Do we compare it to the other side, the uninjured side? Do we have the luxury of pre-injury measures? Are we fortunate to have done that pre-injury testing? Can we compare against some other metric? And you've both been leading a phenomenal team of clinicians and researchers who have been collecting the data and helping to make sense of it all for us. So Adam, let me start with you. Can you please define the population of patients or athletes about whom we're talking today? Pediatric. ACL injuries is a, usually a population between the ages of 12 and 20 is usually where we will see that defined. And often when we look at those age groups, you know, the, really the meat and potatoes of that is in that 15, 16, 17-year-old. So it's your high school athlete, middle school athlete that is rising into high school. And then I would say probably a smaller subset is in this 8, 9, 10 to 12-year-old range. Chris, can you tell us a bit about this project, the people who have contributed to the project and how you've set up such a big data collection system? Over the course of about six months, I kind of put together some fact-finding opportunities to understand what people were already collecting and how they were using the data that they were collecting. And it turned out that a lot of the sites that I was interested in collaborating with were already collecting a lot of the data that I was interested in working with. And so We've worked with Connecticut Children's Hospital, which is uh, where Adam works. We work with Scottish Right for Children uh, in Texas. 
Creighton University, the University of Virginia, Michigan State University, and now the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to put together a preliminary data set, which is a mixture of some retrospective chart review and some prospective data that's collected at the academic centers to start to really build the data set large enough to answer questions instead of just kind of pushing questions forward to to ask just another one for the sake of doing it. And congratulations to you and all of the team, including Adam, on such a wonderful collaboration. It's challenging, I think, when you're working with maybe one or two other centres, but you've got a number of other centres, which is a huge strength for the project, but also a challenge when you're coordinating across different centres who might be collecting data in different ways, using different questionnaires, using different measurement tools. So, so give us a little bit of an insight, Chris. How did you make all of that work? Very carefully, and we messed up many times along the way, but I think we ended up in a really good place. I think the first thing, and and Adam might be able to attest to this as well, is that we tried to have an open conversation from the beginning about what was feasible and what wasn't feasible. My goal from the start of the project was not to tell people how to practice clinically or exactly what they should or should not be doing, but instead say to them, what are the shared elements of the data that we're collecting that can be brought together? Or how can we make small modifications? Like an example would be, measuring from the back of the foot instead of the front of the foot on a hop test just to make sure that we're standardized to ensure that we're just using best practices. And so once I framed it that way, I felt like there was really good buy-in from the scientists who were in the team because they felt like it was rigorous and it was consistent and reliable. And from the clinicians who were on the team because they felt as though they were being heard and taken seriously and that their opinions mattered and that we really wanted to integrate their wealth of clinical knowledge, which often researchers are maybe a little short on. Adam, how did it feel from your perspective as a full-time clinician contributing to this project? What what were the things that really made it work for you and for your colleagues? So we've been formally collecting ACL data for about five or six years and a little bit before uh, I arrived at Connecticut Children's. Chris made it pretty easy and we kind of, again, there's so many very so many things that people test, and the more people you talk to, there's no consensus. So I think some of it was trying to figure out what data that we had that aligned with everyone else, knowing it wasn't going to be perfect and there would be you know certain differences amongst groups. Chris and the rest of the group, you know, were really everything was pretty open for discussion, and, and Chris you know, really made it pretty easy for us to figure out help us navigate what we needed or what we need to contribute. We haven't done anything on this uh, scale yet before. Chris, how can these normative data help clinicians and the athletes or the patients that they're working with to make good decisions in practice? Over the last few years, we've done a series of projects, both in my lab and some collaborative work that has really tried to reach out into the PT community to ask about what are challenges or barriers to understanding clinical progress or how to work with younger patients as you're developing a plan or realistic timelines for return to sport. And one of the things that consistently came up was that it's really challenging to sort of benchmark patients as they're making their way through the rehabilitative process. We would love to have pre-injury data on every patient who comes through the clinic or through the lab. And maybe at some point, the you know, a national health service somewhere will be able to do that. But right now we don't live in that reality. And so so, you know, for a long time, we've defaulted to contralateral comparisons or maybe historical comparisons to a small number of patients that have come through the clinic previously that have been successful. 
But, you know, there's some limitations in that. We know that there's neurologic concerns that go along with ACL injury and reconstruction that make the contralateral limb maybe not the most appropriate comparator. And we also know that, especially through adolescence, individual patients kind of grow and develop differently. And so if you're comparing to a small number of patients, there's likely to have patients who are across the developmental spectrum. And so we were hoping to develop a large enough data set that patients' data could be compared to a pool of patients that would be representative of of sort of the overall, I mean, population is a little strong, but a large enough sample here that you could feel confident that you'd be able to benchmark your patient at least from five to seven months after surgery among their peers, instead of it being comparing to adults or elite athletes or patients who have had different pathologies. Adam, how has having access to these data that Chris has has outlined that you've been collecting, this big normative data set, if you like, how has that changed how you approach designing and also delivering the rehabilitation programs that you're you're putting together with young patients and athletes with whom you're working? You know, in the last couple of years, I, I think myself personally, it probably transitioned some of my my conversations with patients to be a little bit more quantitative with them, um, and especially the higher level athletes. I will show them targets that they they're looking to to go after, and as well as it's visual feedback so they can see some of their results when we test them. But having a better understanding of okay, here's where I think you should be, here's where you are, especially in the time when we test, which is typically you know at our facility we'll test three months post operative, and then now we test at six and nine months. I also will serially test them every six or eight weeks, depending on how they're doing. Having an idea of those numbers, I, I think, helps some of those patients see that because they in the, that three to six month time frame clinically is, is when some of the realities set in. I always tell patients they feel normal, but they can't do anything they want to do. And so using that sometimes can be a vehicle for those patients to really give to understand where they are rather than saying, well, I feel great. Why can't I do this? And then we can also use some of this, this info just to reference, you know, here's where here's where we're going to go over the next four weeks or next three months or next six months. It sounds incredibly helpful as a clinician and also as a patient. And then about building that, what what I think a lot of people talk about as therapeutic alliance, that, that idea that we're working together here, we're making these decisions as a team and we're, we're monitoring progress as a team. And ultimately that will help us re- reach the goal that, that you've set for yourself as a patient or as an athlete. Adam, could you give us a rundown on what are the tests that you're doing, the strength tests, the function tests, and, and then we'll talk about the, the questionnaires, the patient-reported outcomes that you're also collecting? Over the last couple of years, it's, it's evolved a bit more, and, and so we do a pretty extensive testing battery at three months where we use isometric strength, and we look at hand-out dynamometry, hip abduction strength. Um, we're doing some functional testing, including Y-balance and a step-down test. And then now at six and nine months, we've streamlined a bit of our isokinetic strengthening um, where we just test two speeds now, 180 and 60. And then we've streamlined our hop test to only include the single leg hop test, but we're at, we've added a vertical hop test. And that's more because of some of just some of the data that's come out with hop testing. And I think we saw that in our, in some of the normative data that the hop, hop tests are sometimes misleading as far as how well pa- we perceive patients are doing. And then we've always historically used used RSI at early time points because that was sort of something some of our other investigators were interested in. So we test that at three, six, and nine months, as well as IPDC and, and the COOS. And the isokinetic testing you're doing, is that quads and hamstrings, Adam? 
Yeah, so we'll add quads and hamstrings, and then also isometrically, we'll do quads and hamstrings as well. And we do isometrics through the duration as well, and then isoconnects we add in a little bit later. And let's perhaps run through those three patient-reported outcomes that you mentioned for folks who are not as familiar with the knee literature. You you mentioned the ACL RSI, the ACL return to sport after injury questionnaire. What's, what's What are you capturing there? You know, we use the RSI more to determine just psychological readiness slash confidence, where we use the IKDC and the COOS more for self-reported function. IKDC and the COOS are more to say how you feel your knee is doing, and the confidence or the RSI is more how your brain feels like you're doing. I like that framing, one about the how you feel like your knee physically is doing and then also mentally how you feel like you're going with respect to your sport. And I think the beauty of these three questionnaires is that they are really geared towards knee function in higher level activity, particularly sport, but not only sport, as well as capturing some information about symptoms too. Chris, I think that's a good segue to talking a little bit about, let's pick up on some of these patient reported outcome measures. And I think one really important thing for us to discuss is using age appropriate patient reported outcomes. And one of, I think the challenges is the tools that are available or the questionnaires that are available for the adult population are not necessarily appropriate for or or ideal for a younger adolescent or a child population. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're getting around this idea of having questions and tools that are appropriate for the, the specific patient population, athlete population that you're working with? When we hand patient reported outcomes to a 13 or 14 year old that were developed for someone like me, a 38 or 39 or 40 year old, they're at a much different point in their life. They're asking different questions about their knee health, how they feel about their knee, and if they're confident in their knee. And they're also participating in different kinds of activity. I mean, kids are much more likely to be engaged in structured activities that are related to sport, and adults are less likely to be doing that. And so, in a lot of the ACL literature, researchers have utilized the International Knee Documentation Committee subjective knee evaluation form, the IKDC, the the COOS, which is a little bit more about symptoms and pain and quality of life, as well as something called the Marx Activity Scale, which is, a, I think, often misinterpreted as a physical activity scale, but it's really more about whether or not you're participating in pivoting and cutting activities. And the way that the items are worded and structured aren't really appropriate for kids. And so the developers of those questionnaires or folks who are working with pediatric patients and like those questionnaires over time have redevelop them in ways that are a little bit more appropriate for kids. And so in the case of the Mark scale, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York redeveloped that as the PD-FAB scale. For the COOS, we have the child COOS. And for the IKDC scale, there's the PD-IKDC. And it's interesting to see in the normative data that in some cases, these questionnaires kind of perform similarly to the adult questionnaires in certain age groups or in certain graph types or in other demographics that we tested. And in other cases, I think most specifically the COOS scale, the subscales in the COOS seem to perform quite differently between individuals who are using the child COOS versus the, the regular COOS. And that's been published a few different times in a few different knee injured populations. You know, it's not saying that if you're in a clinic that doesn't have resources and it's challenging to get any patient reported outcomes in front of a patient that, you know, using the adult IQDC in a pediatric patient is a big mistake and you're going to, you know, ruin your rehabilitation progress. 
But if you have the opportunity to, these scales are freely available. They're just as easy to complete as their adult counterparts. And I think the patient's going to feel a lot more seen and heard by the types of items and the structure of the questionnaire. Meeting the patient or the athlete where they are and asking them about the things that they really care about. As clinicians, I think, again, coming back to this idea of therapeutic alliance and building that strong rapport relationship that you really need for a long rehabilitation program to work. I think meeting someone where they are and asking them about the things that they care about is is one of the keys to success. And Adam, I guess the other part of that is that as a specialist clinician, you're seeing a lot of patients with this particular injury or, or after ACL injury or reconstruction. But for folks out in private practice who are seeing anybody who walks through the door, you may not see so many people with an ACL injury and have the sort of knowledge of what's a good score, what sort of scores should I expect at this time? How should I expect the scores on these patient reported outcomes to change? So Adam, I'm keen to hear from you a little bit about what you've observed using these questionnaires and how how that information comes into your clinical practice. Initially, we were collecting somewhat to collect. And, and I think um, now, particularly with the RSI and, and, the, and some of the data that you know, has been published on this, that Early on, we'll see low scores regardless because they're not doing a lot of the things that they need to do. But if they're abnormally low, you know, very low from a psychological readiness standpoint, I will typically have a conversation with them very early on just about what this means. And if you think this continues to be a problem from globally, just psychological confidence or readiness, that these are things that we need to, to address. For the more self-reported, you know, out sort of function, you know, with IPC and COOS, I, I think that's more helpful in that sometimes patients may tell us they feel great, you know, especially it might be a high school athlete, they feel great. But then when we look at those scores, it gives us some information to say, well, is this really true? And we can do a little digging, even if it's some of the more subscales, but also we can dig, do some digging and sort of say, okay, tell me more about this is you scored low here. This is what this means. You know, is there anything else that we should know? And then more in the later stages, you know, we know we kind of use some of the cutoffs that been published and reported. And and I kind of say, look, this is just another box that we want to check. We can use those numbers to say, look, this is where we want you to be. Um, And if you're, you're close to that or, or over, then based on best evidence, we, we feel more, more comfortable about you going to the next level of activity or, or full clearance. That sounds great, Adam. And I'm going to keep on the clinical track with you and ask you for your top tips, your top three tips for success in designing and delivering and progressing rehabilitation for young people who have an ACL injury. In the early phases, you know, I think from a clinical standpoint, aggressively trying to find ways to control swelling and and whatever strategies that we can do is, is sort of my initial focus because if we can control that it, it, from a quad recovery standpoint it makes life a little bit easier from a patient and family perspective we we're fortunate in that we usually start pt if they're with us within two to four days of surgery and that's not the time to really sort of map out the whole process because they're usually overwhelmed with everything else that's going on. But I try to be pretty transparent about what to expect and sort of really high, lay out what the next nine months or six months will look, look like. And that may be different for, you know, a 14-year-old recreational soccer player, and whereas more of a, a high school soccer player that has some aspirations of, of playing in college. 
I try to make sure that I communicate that with the, the patient, but I think it's really important just to communicate that with the parent as well, because it, there's, it is a, there's a huge time burden and, and you know, physically and as well as emotionally for a lot of these kids. So I try to just make sure we, I try to be honest, sometimes brutally honest, but also just in the sense to make sure that I try to answer every question they have. And I, I think that makes patients feel more comfortable. The other question that I think a lot of people find challenging is when you're asked, am I ready to go back to sports? So Adam, how are you, how are you helping athletes make that decision? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's still one I still struggle with. I typically will sort of say we need to meet these certain markers. And so one is time, you know, if, you know, we can loosely agree on nine months. Two is we need to see your strength measures meet these certain points. Three, we need to hit sort of certain numbers on these outcome measures just because we have some data there. And then four, you need to just have, you need to get reps and sort of make sure that you feel good to go. And if we can hit those things, then based on what we know, we're probably going to be, we're going to feel more confident about that. So I, I try to set that stage in that three-month appointment if try to really map out and at least give them our best evidence and education about what is the best way to, to return to X activity and sort of expose them at varied amounts of time and sort of thing. And that, I think that's probably where that's a little bit, a little bit of art, a little bit of science and, and a little bit of experience. I like your framing as art and science. I think that's spot on. And also, I guess one of the other challenges people often find is it so depends on your clinical setting and how many visits, if any, you've got and how, how that sort of healthcare system is structured too. So in the ideal world, you might have a very clear plan of how you would work with an athlete and then you're limited within the health system too. So acknowledging that for many folks listening today, that's that's also a really big challenge. Chris, let's wrap up by talking about this resource because I'm really keen for you to frame exactly how you've set it up, what folks can can look forward to in this resource, this big data set, and then how people can get access to it. Honestly, I think this is the most exciting thing I've done in a while as a researcher. And it's it's really exciting to put something out that clinicians can download today and use, you know, free of charge as as often as they like. So with the normative data that was uh, presented in the paper and in the supplemental material in the paper, we developed kind of a Excel-based dashboard. I, I'd like to uh, give some thanks to Matt Harkey at Michigan State University who helped with the, the kind of technical development of that. And really what it enables you to do is enter your patient's age, biologic sex, the graph source that they used for the patient's ACL reconstruction, and it will develop a, sort of a percentile rank for where your patient falls in the distribution for the outcome measures that you've entered data for. And so the nice part is if you don't collect all those outcomes, that's totally fine. You can enter what you have collected on the the patient that you're interested in. And so it also uses kind of a red light, yellow light, green light uh, system to sort of just show you a rough idea of relative to the distribution. Are they on the low end, sort of in the middle near, you know, where the the top of the bell curve would be located or, or somewhere on the on the side that Adam's probably looking for when he's getting ready to return a patient back to, to sport activities. There's a link in the paper. Uh, it's in the discussion section of the paper that links to an open source kind of data repository that's hosted at the University of Virginia. And uh, the Excel uh, spreadsheet is completely downloadable for anyone who wants to use it. And so we're hoping 
over the next few months, Adam and a few of the other sites we've all met to discuss this a little bit. But right now, it works for patients who are about five to seven months after surgery. The hope in the future is to expand that out to some earlier and later time points, and then potentially also add kind of a drop-down menu that limits the data set to patients who haven't had a re-injury at two years so that we can start to not just look at all patients, but can we actually reduce that distribution down to folks who we would deem to be successful. Congratulations. And thank you so much for making this wonderful resource available for free to anybody who wants to access and use it. It's it's so important. Now, and I know that you're both working and sharing this information today as part of a very big team. And I'm sure there are some shout outs and thanks that you'd like to give. So I want to give you this that opportunity now. Adam, perhaps to you first, who would you like to shout out and, and thank on the podcast? Oh, I got to thank Chris for leading this. Uh, and then I want to thank two of my colleagues that I work closely or are closely involved with a lot of stuff, Dylan Roman and uh, Nick Giampetruzzi. Yeah, it's a, a huge team. Adam's team was kind of the first on board. And so I have to thank him for kind of breaking the ice in doing so. I would want to thank Joe Hart at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Terry Grindstaff and Brooke Farner at Creighton University, Sophia Ullman at Scottish Rite for Children, Matt Harkey and Shelby Baez, who uh, were at Michigan State at the time that this was coming together. Uh, Shelby's since moved on to, to UNC Chapel Hill as well. And we will link to all of the resources. We'll link to the JOSPT publication that sets out the project. We'll link to the supplementary material that you've alluded to, the Excel file, and, and let folks know in the show notes where they can get all of that information from. Adam, Chris, Thanks for joining me today on JOSPT Insights to share this wonderful resource and also to give us a bit of the backstory of where it's come from, all of the work that you and the team have put into it, and then and, and a bit of a taste of what's to come in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.